Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Charles Ledbetter was one of the Blavatsky-trained second generation of theosophists and a frequent collaborator with Andy Besant. Ledbetter believed in reincarnation and his ability to recall past lives, including an experience meeting Pythagoras in 504 BCE. Ledbetter's earlier self met Pythagoras on a voyage to Samos and learned from him along the way, an experience reminiscent or perhaps foreshadowing his later travels with leading theosophists Helena Blavatsky to India and Henry Steele Alcott around Asia. Ledbetter believed Pythagoras was an earlier incarnation of Blavatsky's master Kut Humi, and uh, Pythagoras's disciple Clinus was actually Jual Kool. Ledbetter claimed to have spent the next 2,300 years since meeting Pythagoras in the heaven world before being incarnated back on Earth. While born without any memory of the heaven world, the lessons he learned there slowly returned to him, including recollecting a house where he'd resided in a previous life, revealed to him by one of the masters. These lessons led him to the Anglican priesthood and ultimately to a leading role in developing a theosophical and allegorical occult interpretation of Christianity. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson, your supreme hierophant of the, C- of the secret order of alchemical actors, joined by our grand master of the order, Olivia Literal. Hello. Olivia, did you start the Christianity series were you on number one of this series? What was number one? I don't know. You did the sex, I remember. Sex. <laughs> did you, no, you, yep. did, did you do? Uh, did you do the theocracy? You did. Didn't you do one of the theocracy episodes? Oh man, how long ago was that? A it month was like ago? Pat Robertson? No, it's been months now. This has okay, been a long so series. Don't I? Don't recall. Christians trying to rule America. We did a lot of. I just remember. Oh, we did. I did Christian sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, here you are, bookending. We're done. This is it. This is the end. Oh. You are at the end. Well, that's... <laughs> feel sad when you said it like that. I'm at the end, looking end over sometime. a deep cliff. Okay. <laughs> here we are, and the end is Charles Ledbetter. So... <laughs> I, it, what is his last name? Ledbetter. So close to Bedwetter. <laughs> that's all... I'm just... That's all I'm going to say. I'll leave that up to you. But by the end, you'll have to say whether you think. I'm going to hear it at least twice, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's pledge it out. We, We the the members members of the Secret Secret Order of Alchemical Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Open up that order of confessors, please. It's opening, I'm opening it up. It's open, it's open, it's open. I wasn't sure when that was going to end. I thought it I might go either. on I was a little bit longer. I thought I was very starting to fuzzy. relax. Anyway. <laughs> we want to welcome the following patrons. Kenneth M., Ryan D., Zenazoth. Oh my lord. Gosh. Yeah, isn't that nice? And That's Greenstone powerful. Ryan. Greenstone Ryan. That's also... Wait. Greenstone. Not Redstone. Greenstone. Greenstone. Ryan. Thank you. Big Slay says... <laughs> wait, like... Like S-L-A-Y? Slay, Big Slay. That's a review we got. Big Slay. <laughs> we Slay Big. <laughs> Sorry. Says, you he 
I think this person just typed letters into the computer for their oh, name. Oh, I see. Yeah, but I tried it. Nine out of ten slays, they say, which is a reasonable number of slays. I mean... It's an A- minus of slays. That's... Yeah, I was about to say, that's, that's a lot of slays. That's big. Witchling42 says, uh, best podcast out there and much better uh, than that other church podcast. Oh. Uh, she <laughs> means church secrets, so take that, church secrets. All right, Olivia, take us out of here. We're leaving. Mm. We're not doing this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's done. Just singing true things now <laughs> things that reflect what's happening <laughs> oh god okay Chaz Ledbetter was an Anglican minister serving oh. as the Charles I'm just being oh. cute we're, we're starting now yes <laughs> serving as the curate of Bramshot uh, when he joined the Theosophical Society but he was by no means a conservative on things religious he experimented with spiritualism engaged in a silk hat and table tilting with his mother. I guess you tilt the sick silk hat. The spirits tilt it. Oh, I was like, I am not familiar with that one. <laughs> yeah, it was actually new by me, too. Uh, and was powerfully drawn to the theories of the Theosophists. He first heard about Helena Blavatsky uh, from a friend who was an officer on board one of the ships she'd sailed on from Bombay to Colombo. The friend told him how Blavatsky had helped him uh, to light a match in gale force winds on the deck of the ship. Uh, and how she had predicted that the captain would be promoted. Yeah, this is a fun, like, little detail of Blavatsky's biography. <laughs> okay. That's a fun image. <laughs> yeah, like, there she is, and you know, the wind is, like, 70-mile-an-hour winds, and she just walks up to you and lights your cigarette, no problem. Yeah, they, they put that in the movie. And then she says, you're going to be promoted next week. Yeah. Then we cut to a scene of you being promoted to, I don't know, more important captain captain level two go blavatsky go uh these vaguely paranormal feats intrigued ledbetter and may have prompted him to read more of her exploits in ap Sinnott's recently published the occult world Sinnott had become a leading acolyte of blavatsky's in india and the main chronicler of her work at the society's new headquarters in ajar if you're finding any of this blavatsky stuff confusing we got that whole series on blavatsky we did years ago now uh, all different people back then. Yes. Yes. We've all changed our names and protect the innocent. So go back to that series and, uh, yeah, check that out. His tales of Blavatsky, sentence that is, conjuring lost property and materializing letters from the elusive masters caused such a sensation back home in London that the Society for Psychical Research decided to send an investigator to check on these claims. Led better. That didn't go well. See our episode, I guess, on that. Ledbetter began to attend lectures given by Annie Besant at the Hall of Science, and he wrote to Anna Kingsford, then president of the London Lodge, to inquire about joining, but he needed to be invited into the society by two current members. The entomologist, Kirby, uh, then secretary of the society, encouraged him to write to Sinnott, and Sinnott actually replied to the unknown Anglican priest. That's kind of nice. Yeah. I mean, reaching out to your fans. Yeah, he respond. I mean, you respond to people, right? When they write to you, I I respond to the people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's nice of Sinnott. Like you could just be a dick about it. Sure. Some people are. We, I will write to other podcasts as a podcaster sometimes, and they don't even respond. That's very true. We've, yeah. We've experienced that. 
So you could be a dick, but Senate was not a dick about it. So that's a neither are we. No, right. Exactly. Exactly true. <laughs> Senate was at first reluctant to sponsor him given Ledbetter's membership in the clergy, because after all, Theosophist is not a big fan of the Christian church. True. But Ledbetter assured him he was very open minded, and Senate came around to seeing it as an opportunity, taking a quote, peculiar pleasure in admitting a clergyman as a kind of public relations coup. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got one. Senate persuaded G.B. Finch to be Ledbetter's co-sponsor, and Ledbetter was admitted alongside William Crooks, the scientist famous for experimenting on the medium Daniel Dunglass Hume, uh, also Crooks's wife at a ceremony attended by Frederick Myers, C.C. Massey, and the medium Stanton Moses. At the time of Ledbetter's initiation in the early 1880s, there wasn't much in the way of theosophical literature. Ledbetter counted Sinnott's occult world along with Kingsford's The Perfect Way, a book he very much admired, and Blavatsky's Isis Unveiled, which he described as a vast chaos of most interesting matter. I think that's a great description for Isis Unveiled. (laughs) Uh, So those were the books he counted on his his, uh, library that got him into the uh, theosophy. He recognized the deficiencies in Europeans' uh, access to theosophical understanding. Kut Humi sent Mohini Mohun Chatterjee to London to assist with this cause. When the famously eccentric Oscar Wilde met Chatterjee at a party, he remarked to Sinnott's wife, I never realized before what a mistake we make in being white. <laughs> Such an Oscar Wilde thing to say. I really do love him. Yeah, man. He knew he he was a master of the one one liner. Either this wallpaper goes, or I I do. Oscar Wilde's last words. Um. Anyway, Ledbetter was anxious for greater instruction in Theosophy and worked through a medium named Eglinton to try and get a message to Master Kudhumi. Eglinton had him deposit a letter in a box for his spirit control, Ernest, and promised to let Ledbetter better know if Ernest heard back from the master. So this is a lot of telephone. Ledbetter's getting a message to Ernest, who's going to get the message to the masters who are in India, and Blavatsky's talking to him. Oh, Ledbetter. Uh, Meanwhile, Sinnott was pulling Ledbetter deeper into the organization, passing correspondence from the general public on the order of about 500 letters to Ledbetter to answer as best as he could. 500 letters. Jesus. Ernest never produced a letter, but Ledbetter received a reply from the master while Blavatsky was in London and perhaps through her. Kudhumi said it was not necessarily a problem for Ledbetter to be an Anglican priest, but that he bore a share in the collective karma of the Christians, which was not all that good. So by joining the Christian church, he now has to deal with all the baggage of the Crusades and all that stuff. I mean, okay. He made a choice. Sure, fair. Gudhumi suggested that hopping on board the next ship to Adyar to spend a few months working at the society headquarters would be the way to go. And Ledbetter decided to quit his job, drop everything, and join Blavatsky on her return trip to India. Ledbetter first encountered Blavatsky at the infamous meeting at which the London Lodge split between Kingsford and Sinnott. At a meeting of Blavatsky's fellow travelers before they left for Adyar, he watched her materialize a letter from the master to him, which appeared as a whitish mist above her hand before taking form as paper. The letter welcomed Ledbetter as uh, Kuthumi's uh, new chela and congratulated him for leaving his life to go to India. Good job, he said. What was that word you said? Chela. Chela? Yeah, they call Blavatsky their Chela, their student. Oh, yeah, gotcha. yeah. So she was one student. They're like, Ledbetter, you're my newest student. 
but vocab you know hooray yes <laughs> indian vocab um so this happened again on a day train in the space that was occupied by an oil lamp on a night train <laughs> wait what did you just say day train oil lamp night train yes yeah, so if you were on a train in the 19th century the way they would light the train up is with these lamps Okay, sure. Like a glass bulb, right? Sure. So during the day, they would remove the oil lamps. So Ledbetter got a magical letter delivered to him in that bracket where the oil lamp would go at night. It was during the daytime. It's because there was nothing in the bracket, so a magical letter formed there. Got me? Yeah, I, yes. But it's weird, I know. It's just so entirely specific to, like, a time period and a location. Yes. It's hard to amaze okay. people with that story today. Well, she I just... to explain so much. It's, it's cool in my head, but I don't think that's, like, anything probably what it looks like. Blavatsky had been warning her new disciples that Europeans had no sense of the hard work involved in the path they'd undertaken. And the master wrote that Blavatsky had been too harsh with them and that the master was satisfied with them. He said, chill out, Blavatsky. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> That's what the letter said that was in the yeah. oil lamp area. Ledbetter also witnessed Blavatsky go into states of possession in which her body was occupied by the masters or by a Tibetan woman. Ledbetter uh, took care to differentiate Blavatsky's trances from mediumistic trance, saying that the true owner of the body stood more or less within reach all the time of full consciousness. Ledbetter was clearly in awe of Blavatsky, as many of her acolytes were. He said, she was so strong a person that I have never seen anyone among the thousands who met her who was indifferent to her. Sort of a nice That's way. That's a good review. In a way, I mean, he's also saying like you, you, you love her or you hate her. Oh, I, I, I think. Oh, that's you're okay good, with that. Yeah, yeah. Like that. I think I'm sure that was true of her. Like when I die, if that's what people said about me, that'd be cool. None were indifferent to the grandmaster. Yeah. He admired her forthrightness, disregard for bourgeois niceties, and devotion to her master. He witnessed her argue with a conservative clergyman on the voyage to India, taking particular issue with the doctrine of hellfire and damnation. On a particularly beautiful morning at sea, she said to him, Now, Mr. Smith, look round you. See the calm, shining sea and lovely colors. See how your God is. Surely on such a glorious morning as this, you can't tell me that I am going to be burnt in hell forever and ever. <laughs> What's the movie coming out? I know, we need this. Blavatsky on a boat. That's what we'll call it. Well, that's just like 20 minutes of the movie. Oh, the boat scene. Well, like all of all the boat all scenes, will be a boat montage. Is just a fraction of the movie. <laughs> It'll be different montages. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's materializing letters mon- montage, the boat montage. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, the writing montages, of course. A soundtrack in the back. Yes. Naturally, <laughs> provided entirely by who? Who do we pick? Who's, who does the soundtrack for the Blavatsky movie? It's just your music that you make. Oh, me. I mean, oh, I yeah, do it. I yeah. see. It's the music for this podcast. Yes. I see. <laughs> Mr. Smith, of course, continued to believe uh, that she would go to hell, by the way. Just so you know. That's the end of that story. Okay. He also observed uh, her, Ledbetter that is, observed her to have a remarkable talent for telling scary stories. At night, he said, they asked always for tales of the weird and supernatural, which she told so well and with such gruesome realism that her audience shuddered with delightful thrills of horror. We love a storyteller. 
<laughs> natural storyteller. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's often lost on Blavatsky's critics and admirers that she had a knack for entertaining, but she must have. People are we're still talking about her. She's still entertaining us. Um, and also that she didn't take herself too seriously, right? If you imagine this occultist telling ghost stories at night, clearly she's got a sense of humor. Before arriving in Adyar, Ledbetter traveled with Henry Olcott to Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, and became a Buddhist. In this moment, Ledbetter not only showed his open-mindedness to Eastern religion, but also his... he's a Buddhist now? He's a Buddhist Christian. He's both. Okay. He remained committed to Christianity. Can that... What do we think about that? Uh, You know, even... Can that even, like... I've I've heard... Even I took a Buddhism course in college, and, and the professor said that this is theoretically possible but you have to embrace buddhism without the trappings of like some of its specific iterations you know where the buddha is a god or there are all these bodhisattvas there are different things so you apply a buddhist ethic to your christian life i guess i'm thinking like because you you can't like is the bible like a material thing that you, oh, that you shouldn't be committed to it. As a Buddhist, you need to get over all your commitments. Yeah, I, I think that ultimately you have to get over your own Christianity. I guess that's where I'm like, uh, okay. But that's a Buddhist has to get over their own Buddhism in a certain sense, so it's mm. the same idea. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I guess I see the logic. Anyway, Ledbetter resolved to be presented to the high priest Hikadue Samangala Thero uh, to become a Buddhist. He said, I felt the greatest reverence for the Lord Buddha and wholeheartedly accepted his teaching and that I should feel it a great honor to enroll myself among his followers if I could do so without abjuring the Christian faith into which I had been baptized. So, you know, this is how he's treading that thin line. He also journeyed with Alcott to Burma, now Myanmar. There he was impressed by Alcott's ability to discourse on Buddhism, Hinduism, and Zoroastrianism. Olcott told him he was no special expert or scholar of any of these religions, but knew his theosophy, and this allowed him to speak across religions. With great humility, after having authored thousands of pages of books, Ledbetter said in his recollection of these events that he lacked the colonel's ready wit and facility of exposition. Back in Ceylon, he became the first headmaster of the English Buddhist Academy, which is now the Ananda College, still exists. Oh, that's cool. He returned to England in 1889 to tutor A.P. Sinnott's son, and he moved to the Society's headquarters after Blavatsky's death when the Society was being led by Annie Besant. Besant would go on to co-author books with Ledbetter. In 1906, the Society forced him to resign for advice he's given, he'd given to teenage boys criticizing the woeful state of sex education in the Western world and encouraging masturbation. He got kicked out of... The Theosophical Society. Oh. Yeah, let me tell you this story. Ledbetter's relationship with adolescent boys was a regular subject for intrigue and scandal, but there is no direct evidence of impropriety. Okay, well, This is going to make us feel icky, friends. Yeah. His work as a tutor for Sinnott's son, for example, ended under mysterious circumstances. In Ceylon, he brought on an amanuensis, Kurumulaj Jinarajadasa, who traveled with him back to Europe with his parents' permission and became an apt student of Ledbetter's teachings. 
I, I, that's some of these things are neither here nor there. Like he clearly collects around him lots of young men, but some of them are fine with him, and some of them there seem to be these issues. He was committed to developing the Theosophical Youth Movement and received a charter to establish the Lotus Lodge and Journal for that purpose. The masturbation scandal was prompted by a letter from Helen Dennis in Chicago, whose son Robin was one of Ledbetter's crew of teenage acolytes. Oh, here we go. It was a Karen. I mean, Karen in a way. It down. She said that not only was Ledbetter teaching the boys that masturbation was all right, but that it could be an entry onto the satisfaction of homosexual intercourse. Go ahead and clutch your pearls. The theos- <laughs> Olivia won't be clutching anything. Theosophists convened a committee to investigate, and Ledbetter explained that his instructions were meant to help the boys by preserving their purity, diverting their erotic energies, and relieving them of any associated guilt. I mean, we have to admit, it's kind of good advice. I, it's like, that's the thing. I'm like, I mean, if like they said that in sex ed, okay. He, he, but then he resigned and blamed the whole thing on black magicians. Oh. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> he went out a little racist. I don't mean those kind of, that kind of black. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not African magicians. Oh, you have to cut that. <laughs> no, it's kind of funny, but yeah, no, he meant evil magicians. <laughs> Besides, you at least called it out as racist. <laughs> It's not like you were on board with him. You were like, it was He's like a, a conspiracy was happening, oh, yeah. like against In, him. It's a bunch of African magicians got I together. Stop reading the internet. Besant initially distanced herself from her friend, but uh, she stood by him in the long term because she had him readmitted in 1908 after she became pre- president of the International Society following Alcott's death. Wait, so she was like, no, no, no. And then later was like, you can come back on board. I think that she was not so much no, no, no as, oh boy, there's really like a witch hunt after you, man. I'm going to quietly stand in the corner here and wait till this is over. Sure. But it took a couple years. Sure. Yeah. So she didn't like join the chorus of anti-Ledbetters, you know. Yeah. Anyhow. Ledbetter attempted to appoint yet another boy he'd become interested in named Krishnamurti as a candidate for the vehicle or world teacher of theosophy. He met the boy on a beach in Adyar, and Krishnamurti received more than a decade of theosophical tutelage for his psychically perceived future role, but he ultimately rejected this life path and went his own way. Krishnamurti is a fascinating character. I'd love to do an episode on Krishnamurti one day. We'll have the day. We'll have that day, yeah. (laughs) There's always the day. It's difficult to know what to do with Ledbetter's possibly suspicious relationships with these boys. As far as I could tell, he was never accused, let alone caught, doing anything inappropriate with his many young male charges. I spend a lot of time around college kids and have been known to give them sex and relationship advice in and out of class, but that doesn't mean anything untoward has passed between us. Perhaps the still-repressed post-Victorian mores of the Edwardian age prevented the boys from speaking up. Or perhaps these repressed sexual sexual ethics were the very reason Ledbetter was accused of anything at all in the first place. It's foolish to ignore this portion of Ledbetter's life as if it means nothing at all, but it's careless to suggest that it means that Ledbetter was a pedophile. After all, Aleister Crowley himself only ever denigrated Ledbetter with the epithet of sodomite. Well, 
I mean, pot con. Anyway. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Crowley is one to talk, but still, he would have tossed in some of that other stuff if he thought he was also. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ledbetter's homosexuality, by the way, raises the specter of homophobia when it comes to accusations against him. You know, this grooming thing that we still hear today. Um, it's just a common trope. So. I do not defend Ledbetter's choices here, but I also don't think we know enough about them to say that they disqualify him. So we're just going to soldier on and say, this was a thing. <laughs> make of it there. what you will. Yeah, make of it what you will. Sure. It's not like a Michael Jackson situation where we have the Oprah interviews and we know yeah. what went down here. We don't have that. Yeah. We just have some weird scenarios that, who knows? Maybe he really was just dispensing advice to these kids. And that would be fine. Ledbetter wrote extensively on his clairvoyant visions, first developed while practicing kundalini yoga on his first trip to Adyar. The masters uh, he had clairvoyant visions of, uh, and he also had clairvoyant visions of his own occult interpretation of Christianity. In Sydney, Australia, in 1915, he met... Uh, the liberal Catholic and theosophist J.I. Wedgwood, who consecrated him as a liberal Catholic bishop, and so began his work on occult Christianity. By this point, he had already written The Science of the Sacraments. Uh, and here I'll recommend to you all our interview episode with the independent Catholic bishops. Um, so that's a fun talk that connects up with today's conversation, too. With The Science of the Sacraments, Ledbetter articulated the doctrines and practices of the liberal Catholic Church, in contrast to the Church of England, and also in comparison to Roman Catholic rites, which he often elaborated on and extended in his liberal Catholic version. So it's the liberal Catholic Church, you know, like you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's the name of a religious organization. Ledbetter envisioned a psychic edifice constructed through the ritual of the Eucharist with a dome covering the congregation and a spire extending up to God, such that the physical church building came to contain and then be contained by a spiritual structure. You got me? Yeah, sure. He's making like a spirit dome. It sounds cooler than the name, like sounds cooler than... Spirit dome? Than being in a church, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's everybody in the church. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get there. Sure. Ledbetter devoted the largest section of the book to the central ritual of Christianity, the Eucharist. For our non-Christian listeners, this is the, you want to say, Olivia? No, go ahead. You're the <laughs> teacher. I thought you. I'm just, I'm just here. You're the Christian, former Christian. There's a bunch. Of, of Eucharists? Well, there's like all the different things, Parts of right? it? Yeah taking of the body and blood of Christ in the form of bread and wine, in imitation of what Jesus of Nazareth did with his disciples at what comes to be called, or what came to be called, the Last Supper. So, Eucharist. Many Christians consider the Eucharist to be the central ritual in their spiritual life and an important occasion for communing with God. Ledbetter says, Through the ceremony of the Eucharist, each time it is celebrated, there passes forth into the world a wave of peace and strength, the effect of which can hardly be overrated. The Eucharist precipitates spiritual growth, not only for the participants, but also in the surrounding community. He says, The particular method devised for the reception and distribution of this downpouring of energy is derived from the mysteries, with a capital mystery, uh, of some of the older religions. So here, Christianity is not unto itself. It's been grown out of these other religions, which did similar things. 
Well, wasn't the whole thing with the Eucharist, doesn't it trace back to what's-his-face writing about the whole, like, thing with the lamb, like, decaying in the ground? Moses? No. Oh. <laughs> Ar- Aristophanes. What is his name? He like Aristotle? Wrote... No, the other guy. Ar- Arist- Aristoph- Aristophanes? Yes. Isn't that his name? No. Lamb decaying in the ground? He, like... Oh my god, so many people are gonna call me out if I'm wrong. I had to read it. And isn't that what like the Eucharist, like they the Catholic Church like took that and was like, this is the support that we're using for that. So they took it from like a Greek philosopher to begin with who was a pagan, so it's kind of like sketchy. This was in my class I took my first year of UMB, so I don't know oh, if I'm getting okay. it wrong. Let's see here. Uh Aristophanes is the com- comedian, the Greek playwright. Oh, what's the... Starts with Archimedes? <laughs> I can just oh, keep... he's the dude. I can just keep naming... Never mind. Rotting lamb. We took a break there and we discovered that it was in fact Aristotle. And it's what was it about Olivia? The the Dude, I just remember <laughs> that it I think it was like okay, this is like five freaking years ago. Been but a while, pre COVID. It was like about I think the point was that that it was about like a lamb is what he used as an example, but I think it the point was that the lamb like eats like whatever from the ground and then when it dies, it rots back into the ground, and then like the cycle continues. And I, I'm pretty sure that's what my teacher said that they took and used as the argument for transubstantiation or whatever the fuck. The, the Eucharist that the body and the blood of Christ become the literal body and blood of Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what they said because they need it. Basically, people were like, people started to be like, why are we doing this? And then the church would be like, well, which is what they did a lot. Because Aristotle on. said. Yeah, so they took from a Greek. My teacher made a whole point of being like, they took, he was also Italian. <laughs> the, lamb, <laughs> the lamb eats the grass, rots in the ground. Therefore. Someone's going to tell me this is so wrong. the grass. Therefore, yeah. you eat the bread and the wine and you become, Jesus becomes. Somehow those relate. <laughs> And uh, I'm not remembering the exact link, I think. So uh, please uh, DM me on Instagram with all of uh, the corrections to everything that I just said. Thank you. <laughs> the ritual invokes thought forms, uh, which God, which which afford God the opportunity to manifest in the presence of worshipers, but only on the condition that the Eucharist is offered in grateful worship of God and not for personal salvation. You can't do it for yourself. You got to do it for God. Don't be selfish. Got to eat those wafers and drink that grape juice for God. For God, it's got to be about God, not about you. When the worshiper goes to receive the body and blood of Christ, thinking only of their own spiritual welfare, the rite fails to achieve its goals. Christian worship is about much more than the individual. It is meant not only to bind us individually, he says, back to God, it is meant to bind the whole of God's world back to him. Individuals who unselfishly comport themselves achieve a similar result, but a whole congregation achieves it on a much larger scale. 
wonder it wasn't working for me. I was just up there trying to get that grape juice and those wafers. Yeah, you've been too selfish, man. I definitely stole, like, from behind the altar after the, the service. Wafers? Snuck back there, took some grape juice and some wafers. Did you like the wafer taste? With the grape juice. Oh, okay. I was in fourth grade. They don't look very appealing to me as a, you know, I was thing hungry after, like, sitting there for an hour. <laughs> so you just, you would eat anything. It was very appealing. <laughs> I, now that you're saying it, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> why you would eat that of all things. But I would wait when everyone was, like, hey, shaking hands, and then I'd, my acolyte, because I was one of the acolytes, too, so my acolyte friends, we had a whole oh. operation. A little cracker party behind the altar. Yep. <laughs> Catholic. I just think no one cared. Anyway. <laughs> oh, like they knew you were doing it and they were like, oh, they're just getting well, more. Well, so I was, at one point I was f- friends with the daughter of the, the, the pastor. Reverend, yeah. so. so they just thought you were getting more, you just loved the Eucharist so much that you wanted to keep keep that ball rolling. Or they didn't know and I'm just going to hell either way. A Catholic service is far more involved than just the distribution of bread and wine or grape juice. There's also incense, holy water, and both Protestant and Catholic services involve prayers. Speaking of prayers, Ledbetter performs some theosophical religion crossing when he reflects on the traditional conclusion to a Judeo-Christian prayer. Amen. This is usually taken as a strong asseveritin. The word which Christ so often uses, translated on our English version as verily, verily, are, in the Greek in which he spoke, Amen, Amen. The Jews brought this word from Egypt, where it was one of the names of the sun god, Amen-Ra. Ledbetter says that the sprinkling of holy water drives worldly thought from the church, and the water has been magnetized for this end. So he's using a lot of this, like, 19th century occulty terminology, to, and he's applying it to the church service. Just using magnetize because it sounded fancy and sciencey. And... Well, the mesmerist would magnetize you theoretically, so oh. it's a kind of, like, occult activity. Okay. Yeah. This is accomplished less by the water than by the will of the priest himself, which is projected through the water. This is some of the first hints of Ledbetter's occultism. A magical will exerted by the priest joins with the will of the congregation to form an interconnected spiritual energy. Of the ritual itself, Ledbetter says that the host should be wheat bread, but need not be unleavened as it was in Jesus' time. The very fact that to physical eyes, the bread and the wine are evidently just what they were before makes it the more needful to emphasize that in another and higher sense, they're quite different. It has, it, it has to be wheat or it can be. It's got to be wheat. Should be. Without Should. healthy up in this church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need those whole grains. It's good for your colon. <laughs> what a Sunday. The wafers are unleavened though, aren't they? They're just crackers. They don't have yeast in them. No, at least not... <laughs> I was in a Methodist church. We were. It was lax. Oh, Methodist church is like you just ate whatever was not on the hand. most lax, but like you know, could be more chill, could be less chill. My Methodists out there know. My Methodists, my people. <laughs> Your Methodist people. Yes. My Methodist people that are listening, listening to, to this podcast yes. right now. <laughs> I love large, you. Large weird room Please full just... of people. <laughs> the bread Rate us with M Gang. Is that a thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know. Anyway, you know better than me. I don't know anything about gangs. The bread becomes, in Ledbetter's words, a vehicle of the Christ, and in a very special way, a, a, a outpouring of His consciousness. What's important to emphasize here is the reinterpretation of Catholic supernaturalism, the doctrine of transubstantiation through the lens of occultism. There is a literal supernatural power in the ritual of the bread and the wine. These are not mere symbols, but an, offer an opening onto a higher world of consciousness and being. 
So, yes, transubstantiation, but now he's saying you as an individual are achieving this higher occult knowledge. Four times during the Eucharistic service, the priests or priest calls on the angels for their help. Humans have not evolved to the point of being able to regularly talk to angels, so don't worry if you're having trouble. But you're not alone. You're not alone. But angels like to participate in religious services to do a good deed and because it helps with their own spiritual evolution. So they're always waiting around for church services to happen. The theosophical notion... Does it make me feel good about that? <laughs> you think they're shoving more often or... No, that they're just like... Sitting there. Angels are just out there trying to get their good deeds on. Oh, they're using us. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sound very angelic. What's the difference between them and the reptilians at this point? <laughs> no, I'm just going to start a full-blown war. Like a full-blown religious war on occult confessions. I'm sorry. Angels and reptilians. This could be your conspiracy theory. Angels be reptilians. The, theosophical... the greatest warrior. <laughs> Spiritual reptilians. The theosophical notion of a constant evolution of souls on the earth plane and in planes of being below and above humanity come to full force here. Angels, like humans, are working on their spiritual development, uh, but they are at a higher stage. The angel expands the bubble formed by the priest's will at the outset and protects the participants from evil or wandering thoughts as they praise God. So that's kind of nice. They produce a tenuous cobweb-like checkering, a veritable ghost of a floor made of a diagonal made of diagonal lines of crimson, which is uh, a current of love and blue. Uh, blue, sorry, which is a current of devotion. So red is a current of love, blue is a current of devotion. Those are flowing through the bubble. There's crisscrosses. There are nine orders of angels, each with their separate project. Representatives from all of these orders gather during the Eucharist, as uh, do the spirits of the dead. Ledbetter advocates ninefold sensing and ninefold offerings of the spirit. Nine times, please. He likes the number nine. Is that a is that a Bible number nine? No, I don't think so. I don't remember. It's not a very I mean, important I feel number. Like now, every time I'm like on Instagram, it's like every number is like <laughs> an angel number that means something, and I'm like, did they? <laughs> this was Ledbetter's angel number. Nine. Number nine. John Lennon too. Number nine, the divine force emanated by the host is a reality, a definite scientific fact, says Ledbetter. This spiritual force, which is oftentimes spoken of as the grace of God, is just as definite as is steam or electricity or any other of the great forces of nature. There are also spiritual forces flowing from the congregation toward God and from God toward the congregation. A spire extends up to heaven, colored according to the energy of the congregation. Ledbetter tells us that the object of a church service is to make a channel through which the divine force can flow. This is not to suggest that God directs love and energy only in the moment when a church service is happening. Rather, a church service creates the conditions under which that energy, which is perpetually flowing from God, can be received. So God's just constantly flowing out good stuff, and the church gets together and makes a funnel. Okay. Yeah. God works according to the path of least resistance. So while God is continually extending a spiritual energy toward us, our work as in a church service can facilitate our reception of that force. Music, by the way, helps in the process as well. Oh, I know that's right, because music, key part of church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It would suck without it, to be honest. Don't the Quakers just sit there quietly? Yeah, don't they just like, well, whatever they have an organ or to say, they're just like... Nobody gets out like a guitar. No, they just no. Like stand up, right? Correct us, just... Quakers, if any of you are getting out a guitar to speak your piece. I mean, like, go off for creative flair, but like... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let us put it that the Earth is a great intelligence, 
and that music is one of her faculties. That when we play or sing, we are helping the earth to express itself and associating with us in our work a host of great music angels. In contrast to the spiritually inclined, spiritually inclined angels are the passion-inclined nature spirits. Nature spirits evolve largely by means of the vibrations in which they bathe themselves, and therefore the instinct implanted in them leads them to be always watching for those who are useful to them. Lower spirits are attracted to uh, sensuality and irritability, which is not a sign that they are evil, but just a sign of their nature. Higher spirits are drawn to the sign of the cross, which the Theosophist wants to remind us is not an exclusively Christian symbol, by the way. The cross drives off lower spirits only because they are not interested in the energy it conveys. So that vampire thing, it's not like vampires are scared of Jesus, they're scared of crosses, which have an ancient occult power. Humans have misunderstood these morally neutral nature spirits as evil demons, and our misconceptions of evil extend to our own spiritual progress as well. The notion that the material and sensual are necessarily wrong is overwrought. The Greeks knew that God made the lower as well as the higher, and that while we are in the lower, we are intended to make the best of it and get the utmost joy possible out of life. But, as Greek civilization decayed, excesses popped up that the Christians found abhorrent. And, says Ledbetter, setting up the ideal of asceticism, they swung to the opposite extreme in their thinking and condemned as evil everything pertaining to the world and to physical life. Such exaggerations are unwholesome and unnecessary. Here's my masturbation guy. The sensual world is not all bad. He's saying, you know, it's a little bit of Christianity, it's a little bit of paganism. We got to meet in the middle. The pagans went too far. They started having too many orgies. But the Christians, they, their reaction was, you know, too far in the other direction. The idea that God, that's very Buddhist of him, middle pathy. The idea that God becomes wrathful or angry at humanity or individual humans is another misconception in which is wrapped eternal damnation. God, says Ledbetter, holds no grudge against any man. On the contrary, he's always waiting to help, just as the sun is always shining, which is true, just at different parts of the earth. God's role. <laughs> God's role is not so much to judge and punish as to assist with our faltering, steady climb through the ladder of spiritual evolution. This suggests a new view of sin, which is not necessarily unique to Ledbetter, but has things in common with medieval mystic Julian of Norwich, for example, who also said uh, saw God as perpetually available to help the stumbling sinner. Sin is not a crime, but rather a movement against our spiritual evolution, and absolution is a matter of removing barriers between the self and God. Usually, says Ledbetter, what is called sin arises from one of two things. Either a man is ignorant and makes mistakes, or he is careless and selfish and not sufficiently attentive to the consequences of his acts. So he says, no, people aren't going out trying to be awful. They're just kind of slow or kind of ignorant or, you know, just not thinking it through. Okay. Knowledge and care or attention are then the remedies for spiritual thoughts, faults. So you just got to be more attentive. Be more careful. It's just like your shop teacher told you. <laughs> shop teacher for the soul, Charles Ledbetter. While Ledbetter is a great advocate for Christian ritual, he takes some issue with fundamentalist or dogmatic readings of Christian scripture. He says... To regard any such book as infallible is to run counter to truth, to reason, and to history, for it is easily demonstrable that they all contain many inaccuracies, and there is in nearly all of them much exceedingly objectionable matter. Ledbetter goes on to make a distinctly theosophical comment about the Gospels. We are now well aware that, historically, most of the reasons for special respect for the Gospels 
have no existence. We know that these books are, for the most part, not the works of those to whom they are attributed, that many of the works which they assigned to Christ were certainly never spoken by him, and that in any case, they were not intended by the writers to be taken as an account of historical facts, but merely as the casting of the great eternal facts of human progress into the form of an allegory, just as was done in the other great mystery dramas of the ancients. Hot take. Hot take. Let's take his analysis one step at a time here. First... First is his idea that the Gospels were not written by the people to whom they are attributed. Matthew and John, for example, were supposed to have been among Jesus' apostles. Mark was an attendant of Peter and Luke. Uh, Luke, by the way, was an attendant of Paul. Today, the authorship is widely accepted to have been anonymous. Mark's book is the oldest, dating to 70 AD. Matthew and Luke came about 20 years later, and John 20 years later still. In other words, they describe events that happened 40 to 80 years before they were written, making it unlikely the writers were first-hand witnesses to any of this. That having been said, they do have some value as historical documents. Some of their claims are contradictory, but it would be inaccurate to say, as Ledbetter does, that none of the words ascribed to Jesus were spoken by him, or that the story is entirely allegorical. That having been said... The incarnation, execution, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has proved a powerful allegory for the progress of the soul, detailed in Ledbetter's lifetime by, for example, the hermeticist Anna Kingsford. The idea is so often held by the ignorant that these mighty hosts of glorious angelic spirits exist chiefly to dance attendance upon men is merely the fruit of the amazing conceit of the human race, just as was the geocentric theory, or the still more incomprehensible delusion that God himself came down and underwent physical death in order to save from imaginary horrors the inhabitants of this particular speck of mud. (laughs) The angels exist, as do men, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the appointed method of such glorification is first, by self-unenfoldment, and secondly, by service. Angels are not all concerned with us. Ledbetter is a heretic for sure, but he embraces Christianity as a path to spiritual enlightenment and as a deeply effective means for communion with God. Ledbetter comes off as a theosophist first and a Christian second in his formulation of liberal Catholicism and his science of the sacraments. He goes so far as to say that the saints themselves can be interpreted through the lens of theosophy as the Great White Brotherhood, also known as the Lodge of the Ascended Masters. What if all the saints were just in the Lodge Hanging out with Kut Humi. What a day. What a day. Christianity is simply the best means he has discovered, at least for him personally, for achieving the spiritual project he's undertaken. And we are all in the midst of the same project according to his metaphysics. Christianity is right about its ritual, but wrong to suggest its own infallibility or the infallibility of its texts. This allows for a universal understanding of religion, which his biography suggests he carried with him from his earliest days and merged with a distinctly theosophical occultism in his Ledbetter incarnation on Earth. Uh, that's my thoughts on Charles Ledbetter, my analysis thereof, and his science of the sacraments. Final thoughts from you, Olivia. Honestly, only heard Bedwetter like once. Oh, good. Yeah. That's pretty good. So you liked him for the most part then? Um, I'm not going to say I liked him. You're worried about some things? The, Concerned, the boys. I guess. What was going Reasonable on with those boys? Concern. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's okay, I guess. Yeah. He's. <laughs> I don't think we'd see eye to eye on a lot of things. 
Yeah, that may be true. I think he might be fun to hang out with. In like maybe a certain setting. <laughs> like okay. I don't drink, but I'm also not gonna take him to the bar. Yeah, yeah. Like we're not gonna go out. That's out. fair. Yeah. Maybe like a dinner that I have to be at for like two hours tops. Yeah, he's telling stories. Yeah. Spinning yarns. Yeah. Talking about Jesus. Yeah. yeah. The Jesus metaphor. And I'm like looking up like the lamb shit, trying to just keep up. Yeah, yeah. Who was that guy again? Ara- the lamb is rotting. Ara- Ara- something. People are really gonna come for me on that. I honestly, I welcome it. I think that I need to know exactly if I'm right or not. I thought they can give us. They're not gonna come for you. They'll give us more details on it. I yeah, think. that's yeah, that's fine. Come. Yeah. Come, come with love and knowledge. Come to me with knowledge and love. <laughs> bring, Arms open, and br- I will receive you. Bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, joined by Olivia Literal, our Grand Master of the Order. That's me, and we did it. We did it, and we want to thank Brandon Walls for providing the voice of Charles Ledbetter. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's all we got to say about Christian occultism. We have been on the Christianity series for way long. Um, we are going to bring you a couple of special episodes as we close things out on uh, the subject of being gay and Christian. Uh, we've uh, created a couple of panels in our own uh, Night of the Dangling Serpent. Jacob Wheatley had a nice conversation with me. Uh, yeah, we <laughs> all the way from Seattle about their experience as a gay person in the Christian church adolescence I guess anyway it's a fascinating tale uh, and Jacob goes into conversion therapy uh, and is, is quite honest with our confessors and, and uh, we appreciate that so something to look forward to here on A Call Confessions <laughs> <laughs>